Hi, everyone. So thrilled to be with you, as I've already said this morning. So there you go. You get it again. Uh, this morning, we're finishing our look at the book of Exodus. And then next week, we'll beginning, uh, be beginning a short two-week look uh, at a series we're going to call True Religion, which is what uh, we're taking from the book of James 1. We're going to look at how practically we can be a church that serves the least of these. Uh, next week, we'll have some organizations that will be here in the lobby that can give you some more information about fostering, about adoption, about getting involved, maybe with counseling some women who are caring at pregnancies. We'll also be looking in two weeks at what we're doing with the orphanage that we partner with in San Luis Potosi, Mexico, and how you can impact a child's life there. Actually, Pastor Brett and Armando have a team of folks that are there this morning. Actually, our church has two teams, two mission teams that are out this week. One is down in Mexico. The other one is down in San Antonio. A group of our college students are there helping that new, brand new ENC chapter there at UTSA. Very cool. Yeah. So they'll give you all the updates about that when they return next week. So let's finish our series this morning uh, from the book of Exodus. We're looking at the glory of God, part two, sort of a two-part series to end the series. And our scripture reading again is from chapter 33 and a bit from 34. Here we go in chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. 
It's our scripture reading this morning. You know, many, uh, excuse me, one of the main reasons that people many times walk away from the idea of God, from faith, from the church is they say, well, it all seems so boring. So boring. There's no feeling uh, or emotion or experience involved. As a matter of fact, in survey after survey that's sort of put out about faith in our culture, Americans in particular say that they would be open, actually, to knowing more about God and being a part of a church if that church could help them encounter God in a profound way. And really, there's no better place to do that than right here in Exodus 33 and 34. That's why we're taking two weeks to look at it. Now, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and the question that we've been raising is the question that's at the heart of the book. It's a question, actually, that an Egyptian skeptic of sorts asked all the way back in chapter 5, which is this. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And the astonishing and final answer that the book of Exodus gives us is this. This God is the God of experience. He's the God of experience. In other words, the biblical God is deeply relational and longs to bring you into an encounter with him. And this book shows us he longs to bring those whom he has rescued not out into nothing, but out and into himself. After all, let's not forget as a final look, the narrative sweep of the book of Exodus, which is this. This book is about a people who begin the book in slavery and yet end the book in worship. They end the book in worship. God, in other words, rescues us from slavery to bring us into an experience of himself. So if what this text tells us is true, and it is, that the God of the Bible is the God of experience and longs for us to experience him, we've got to ask at least three questions this morning to understand what that means. And so let's ask them, see if we can get some answers. So when we experience God, let's ask, number one, what do we experience? We'll see we experience the glory. Why do we experience it? We'll see that through the tent. And finally, how can we even experience it in the first place? We'll see that through the rock. So the glory, the tent, and the rock this morning. Here we go. Let's ask, number one, what do we experience when we experience God? Well, first, let's back up and ask, where are we in our story? As well, as we saw last week, God has rescued the people of Israel from their slavery. They're now out living in camps in the desert. The people there make a covenant with God, and they swear they're going to follow him and love him and serve him forever, except They don't, as we saw. Even though God's done everything for them, provided for them in every way, they break their covenant with him by making and worshiping a golden calf. And in doing so, they break his heart. And so now God comes to Moses here in chapter 33 and essentially says, the deal's off. The deal's off. This loving, the intimate relationship thing between us, it just isn't going to work. You go ahead into your promised land. I'll give it to you because I've sworn to. I promise your forefather Abraham I would do it. So go ahead and go on in, but I won't go with you. Therefore, there will be no need, Moses, to set up a tabernacle anymore. You won't have to make time to make those sacrifices anymore, Moses. You won't have to sacrifice financially anymore, Moses. Moses, you can have all the benefits of knowing me and what I can do for you without the cost of actually having to be with me, see. And as we saw, of course, last week, Moses says, God, I'll have none of it. I'll have none of it. Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here. How shall it be known we found favor in your sight? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, what does this mean? Well, far from responding how the average human heart would, 
Instead of saying, God, you know, this sounds like the best deal ever. I mean, everything I've ever wanted, God, right? I mean, everything you can do for me with no obligation. No, Moses doesn't respond that way at all. Moses doesn't say that's a great deal. He says, no, that's the worst deal I've ever heard. Life isn't worth living, God, if we don't have your presence in our lives. Okay? And so when Moses says, your presence is what makes life worth living, your presence is what we were made for. What defines us is your glory, in other words. Moses here, is, by saying this, is raising a fascinating, actually philosophical question, which is this. What were we made for? Hmm? What were people made for? I mean, why do we even exist, right? Why do we even exist? Uh, you're breathing today, thank God, right? I mean, you got up, you got dressed, you brushed your teeth. And we all say thank you for that. I mean, you never know these things. Apparently, people can't be trusted with this anymore. That's why there's billboards all over the city to remind you, right, to brush your teeth. We can't be trusted. So, got to check, right? I mean, why do we exist? Is it just to live a nice life? Go into your promised land of your financial life, of a great marriage perhaps, just to feel good. I mean, why do we exist? And the answer that Moses gives us here and the Bible shows us in general is that we were made for, we were built for the glory of God. Now, you gotta, we've got to slam on the brakes almost as quickly as we raise the, the, the idea and come to a halt really quickly here because the average person says, and of course especially the average American says, I don't like that. That feels kind of weird. I don't like the sound of that at all. As a matter of fact, I I recently had a conversation with a friend who was having a conversation with her friend about this thought and that her friend objected to this. She really hated the idea that we were made for the glory of God. And her objection basically went like this, and maybe it's yours today. The objection goes like this. What kind of a God needs me to glorify him, right? I mean, is he so small and insecure that he's got to have lots of, you know, minions running around, you know, shouting his name all the time in order to feel good about himself, if that's what God is, right? I mean, if he's small and shallow and needy and egotistical, right? You've heard this. If he can't handle the universe without me, then I don't want any part of him. Now, that objection, of course, is so common. It's everywhere today. Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, before he died, the new atheist, and, of course, Oprah Winfrey in particular, point to this thought, as a matter of fact, as probably the main reason why they don't serve God. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. Now, that objection is actually understandable if that what was happening right here. But I'd like for you to consider that's not at all what the Bible means when it says that we were made for God's glory, not by a long shot. And that actually, if that's your objection, that just means you haven't read all the way through the Bible. Okay? So let's ask, what does it mean to say we are made for God's glory? Well, first you have to ask the question, who is God, right? I mean, what is God? If God were just unipersonal, right, one person, then yes, certainly he would necessarily need to have to create out of a need for glory, a need to be worshipped, right? I mean, if God were just one person in and of himself, there's no way he could ever experience relationship until he had created. He couldn't experience love or joy or glory until he created someone to love and serve and glorify him. See, but that's not who the God of the Bible is at all. 
So the God of the Bible is not unipersonal, like the God of Islam. The God of the Bible is tripersonal. He's not one person by himself, but three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has no relational need outside of himself. He doesn't. See, which begs the question, if God is infinite, right, and he's tripersonal, Father, Son, and Spirit, why did he even create anything in the first place? Why did he create anything at all? And then John 17, in the New Testament, many years later, Jesus actually, near the end of his life, prays an astonishing prayer, and we essentially get to eavesdrop in on a conversation within the Trinity. It's amazing. And here's what Jesus prays for and asks his Father for, for us. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you. When? When? Before the world began. Verse 24, he says it again. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me, when? Before the creation of the world. What are we being told here? It's amazing. We're being told that there is an ancient and almost incomprehensible love that from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been pouring into one another's hearts in amounts and degrees that are beyond comprehension. Inside God, other words, in other words, is pure joy, pure love, pure ecstasy, pure happiness at the center of God within himself is glory. And why is this? Well, when you love someone, right, when you really love someone, what do you do? You pour love into that person's heart, right? You lose yourself in loving them. I mean, the best friendships, the best ones, are the ones in which you're not always thinking about what are they going to get you for their birthday, right? Unless they're a really good gift-giving friend, like my wife is. All right, praise the Lord. The best friendships are the ones in which you are thinking, man, what can I get that person for his or her birthday? The best kind of intimacy in marriage is not when you look for your spouse to please you, but when you lose yourself in giving pleasure to your spouse. And so what we see inside the Trinity are three persons who do not demand love, nor are they three persons who only give love. It's not a dysfunctional relationship, but they are giving and receiving perfect love in perfect amounts in infinite degrees over infinity. It's amazing. Yeah. God is glorious within himself. Can you see? God has no need of glory from anything outside himself. He's got it all inside. So what then was Jesus asking for and praying for? And here it is. Not that God would demand glory from us, but that God would share glory with us. See the difference? Not that God would demand glory from us, but that God would share glory with us. That's Jesus' prayer. Do you see the difference? I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. To glorify God, therefore, at a fundamental level, is to enter in to the heart of love, joy, glory, and peace within God. See, God didn't make us to get glory, my goodness. He already had an infinite amount of glory from a perfect son and an awe-inspiring spirit for all eternity. No, he made us to share glory, to share his heart with us, and that is astounding. That's astounding. What Jesus prays here in the upper room, can you see, casts an enormous light on what Moses prays here in the desert. And Moses, of course, he doesn't know the depth of his request when he asks for God's glory, but he does know the heart of his request. Moses knows this. He knows that underneath every pleasure he's ever experienced, 
underneath the love he maybe he has in his marriage, underneath the love and the bonds of friendship that he has, underneath even the exhilaration of the experience of leading a million slaves out of slavery into the desert was this. The ultimate thing he could ever want, the seed that he had tasted in those things was now in full bloom in the heart of God. See, And he saw that and he wanted to get in. And everything, church, you ever wanted to taste, it's in the heart of God today. To experience God's glory, therefore, is to share his heart, to share his heart. That's what we were made for, and that's what you can experience. Have you? Have you? Let me tell you, you can. You can. That's number one. That's the teaching. What do we experience when we experience God's glory? First, it's the sharing of his heart with us. Which now leads us to number two. And we've been here sort of in the 35,000, you know, sort of philosophical nosebleed uh, point number one. So let's bring it back down here and get really practical with the second question. And just ask now, well, why, (coughs) excuse me, why do we experience it? And the answer this text gives us is this. God shares his glory with us. He shares his heart with us so that we can simply share it with others. So that we can give it away to those around us. And we see that through something called the tent. You say, the tent, what's that? Well, let's take a look. All right, verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off. And he'd call it the tent of meeting. Anyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent, which was outside the camp. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, stand at the entrance, and the Lord would speak to the Moses. All right, so the tent is the place that Moses would set up in which the presence of God would come. Now, first of all, before we go on, this is an incredible thing to say that a God would do. Other religions always had temples on tops of mountains that would make people go up to meet with their God at the top. But here we see that the God of the Bible isn't a God who makes you go up. He's a God who comes down to you. As a matter of fact, he comes all the way down to his people, right to bring his presence in the midst of his people. And so, therefore, by setting up and taking down the tent, Moses is going to show us at least four things, just four fascinating ways in this text of how God's glory comes in our lives and how we can practically share that with the lives of others. Let's go through them quickly. And the first thing, the first way we see we can actually share God's glory, this is astounding, is simply, A, through our work. It's through our vocation, through our labor. Let's ask, what was Moses doing hmm, when the glory cloud, when the presence of God came? What was he doing? He was working wasn't he? He was laboring. He was setting up and taking down, you know, banners and poles and tables and lampstands. In other words, Moses was doing his job, right? He was doing his job. God's glory came through Moses doing his job well, because Moses was doing it and doing it well. Is this, let me ask you, how you see your job today, Hmm? your employment? See, do you see it as an opportunity every day for God's glory to come down and touch the people around you? How did the people know God was near them? How do they know? Because they watched Moses at work, right? They watched Moses at work. They watched him get up and go to work every day. And his job allowed God to come that much nearer to the people. Dorothy Sayers was a British mystery writer during World War II, and she said this. She said that, quote, the church's approach... To an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What was Moses doing here? 
he's making good tables in a sense, right? He's setting up a good tent. Do you do this, right? Understanding that your work is the place day after day where the presence of God can come. People ask me all the time, you know, Morgan, what's it like to be called into vocational ministry? I said, well, what's it like to be called into teaching? It's the same God who calls in the same way, right? What's it like to be called in the business? What's it like to be called to be a mother? You know, I may never know that one, but I'll ask the question uh, anyway. The only reason I do what I do is because God's asked me to do it. In the same way, he's asked you to do what you're doing, perhaps. Or the place where you can serve the God, serve God the most and other people the most with what he's given you. I'm not more loved by God. And anyone else, just because I do vocational ministry. Listen, let me encourage you, challenge you, exhort you. Believe God to meet you in your work, in your work, through your work, every day over your work. Great example of this is the great jazz artist John Coltrane. He certainly did this. Coltrane was an amazing artist, but he struggled with just how to see his work uh, as something maybe even that was good and righteous, whether just making music was a good in and of itself. And then one day, he had an encounter with the glory of God that changed his life. And he described it later in the liner notes of his masterpiece album called A Love Supreme. He said, quote, during the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked the means to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music, to inspire them for realizing more and more of their capacity for living meaningful lives, because there certainly is meaning to life. I feel this has been granted through his grace, all praise God. Great. What did he do? I mean, it's the same thing you can do. He experienced God's glory to share through your work. And you, no matter who you are, a stay-at-home mom or an on-the-go dad, you can do this every day. So that's the first implication. First, we share God's glory through our work. But here's the second, and it's probably you saw this one coming, but it's through our worship. It's a bit easier to see, but it's no less critical. Let's ask, what was there for the point, though, of Moses' work? What was the point? He was making a place for people to encounter God, to encounter God. That's the role, may I suggest to you, because I will, that's the role of a spiritual leader. The role of a spiritual leader is to make a place for people to encounter God. A parent's job, uh, as a single person in your apartment, your job is to create an environment where people can meet God. When you come here on Sundays, maybe in your home throughout the week, you can do exactly what Moses was doing, except, thank God, without the tables and the poles and the banners and all that stuff. Maybe if you like that stuff, maybe you're out of 80s charismatic Christianity. All right, you got banners and flags. Good. All right. Use them. Fantastic. You're making a place for you to encounter God. Just watching Moses worship inspired and affected the people around him. So let me ask you, does how you worship inspire and affect those around you? When I come here on Sundays, I am absolutely, I'm setting up like a mini tent right here, a place where I can encounter God, where God can be honored and worshiped. I ask him to come and meet you and meet me in this place. When you come here, let me encourage you. Don't stand and stare, right? Don't just stand at your tent and watch. (laughs) And engage, right? Build a place where God can meet you and encounter you. And when you do that, this text shows us God's glory comes that much nearer to those around you. Imagine if we all did that week in and week out, what our experience here would be like. That's number two. We share God's glory through our worship. Third, we share God's glory simply through our service, through our service. The passage goes on to say, verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, 
They'd all rise up and worship and each at his tent door. Again, how do you approach your role as a spiritual leader for those of you who are Christians? Well, how did Moses approach his role as a spiritual leader in his community? Did Moses ask, what's in it for me here, God? Hmm? What do I get out of it? I mean, you have to see, Moses was coming day after day, week in and week out. He'd come to set up the tent, right? Put the stuff up to help his spiritual community go. And while it's true that the people did rise up and worship, and that is amazing, you have to see that it's true that none of them were offering to lend a hand. (laughs) They weren't offering to lend a hand. They, in a sense, stood up, watched, worshiped, and went back to their daily life, which is unfortunately what many American Christians do with church today. That's why we challenge you to get involved here and to be a part of our, one of our service teams. See, but Moses continued to serve no matter what he got out of it, which is why the book of Hebrews later calls him a person who is faithful as a servant over all God's house. He didn't grumble, right? I mean, when is somebody else going to set this thing up? Right? I mean, when's someone else going to take care of the kids? I mean, when's someone's going to pick up the slack? Right? Now, it's true they should have. They could have, but that's, we're not talking about them. What makes Moses so great here is simply the heart of service he had for God's people. And that's what made Moses great. That's what we believe makes a person great here in this local church. So let's ask them, how could Moses keep going? Here's how. He knew simply the secret of service, which is this. You don't do what you do for others. You shouldn't do anything for others. You do it as unto God. If you do it for others, you'll burn out. You'll miss out on what God can do through consistent, faithful, unglamorous, and unseen service. That sounds exciting, I know. If you do it for a thank you, you do it for a pat on the back, you'll always be disappointed. Now, we should honor you. We should affirm you. We should see, right? Let me just, let's just stop and ask, how many of you here by show of hands are involved with one of our service teams or in a community group? You lead a community group involved one of our service teams. Thank you. Thank you. You're a significant part of what makes this spiritual community go. But let's just acknowledge the obvious. No one can see all you do except for God. Therefore, why would you want to do what you do for anyone else? They'll only not see. <laughs> but if we do it as unto God, we know he always sees. We just get him, right? We just get to be around him. And there's blessing in that. Do you have a heart of service for God's people? Hmm? Not just a title, right? Not, I mean, no one's asked me or, I mean, where do I fit in? No, just, do you have a heart of service? Maybe he's just putting up poles and tables and banners. See, Moses wasn't above doing the menial tasks as a leader. And neither are you and neither am I. Neither am I. So Moses brought glory into his spiritual community by faithfully serving. That's number three. And finally, fourthly, through simply discipleship. Their discipleship. Look at verse 11. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from a tent. Now, in many churches today, you'll, you'll find some that say, hear this, there's no need to go out into the world and be salt and light. All we need to do is just stay here and seek God's presence. Right? But you'll find others that say, hey, we don't need to sit here and seek God. We just need to go out and make disciples 
But thankfully, the Bible makes no such distinction. Here we see, through the relationship between Joshua and Moses, that true worship, authentic worship, is going to lead us to pour our lives out for the next generation, like Moses did for Joshua. Why? Because in the DNA of God's glory is sharing that glory with others. And we see, on the other hand, that authentic discipleship begins with bringing someone into a fuller, deeper encounter of who God is. Worship, without an outflow of discipleship, on the other hand, really is just selfish. It's just taking what God's given you and let it end with you. But discipleship, that doesn't bring someone into a fuller, richer, deeper experience of God, will be short-lived in the long run. There's no glory, no presence to sustain it. Let me ask, is your name a part of anyone's testimony? Is it? Wow. When they give their testimony, does someone mention you? Oh, it's a beautiful thing if it's the case. See, it can be, and it should be. Church, we can share God's glory through discipleship. That's the four things. So let's add, let's recap briefly. What have we seen so far? Four, right, four practical things. Well, first, we see we experience God's glory to share his heart. But secondly, we see we experience it so that we can share it with others. So let's ask now our third and final question this morning about God's glory. Not just what or why we can experience it, but how we can even experience it in the first place. Let's ask, man, how can the glory of God be yours and mine today? We'll see here in a moment. There's a mystery. There's a mystery. Moses experienced God's glory, but he shouldn't have. So how could he? Well, it's the same way we can. How can we experience God's glory? Well, through the rock. Now, not Dwayne Johnson. Man, it's not Hercules, right? I mean... He's thousands of years late to this game. No. Some of you were thinking it. <laughs> it's through a different kind of rock altogether. Verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. So God says in effect, all right, Moses, you want to see God's glory? You ready? Okay, Moses, yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Kind of, but not really. Moses, come near, but stay away. Now, what is this? What's going on? God is saying, I am so incredible. I am so amazing. And direct experience with me is so intense, you literally cannot take it. But then God says, something else can take it. He says, here's what can take my glory, a rock. A rock. I mean, what was this? What's he saying? A rock can take God's glory, but Moses can't. What in the world does this mean? Well, actually, here in this passage, we don't get the answer. (laughs) We don't get the answer. The question just hangs out in the open for centuries. It's like a plot thread that demands to be explained. But one day, it was. Because one day, centuries later, God brought another leader of his desperate for an experience of him to the same mountain. Many years later in the book of First Kings, a man named Elijah came to the same place, to the same mountain. Elijah was also desperate to see God's glory. He loved God's glory. He hated the evil he saw going on in his nation. His heart was despairing. He was in the depths of despair when he saw things in his nation were going from bad to worse. And like Moses, Elijah went out into the desert to meet God. And like Moses, Elijah fasted for 40 days. And like Moses, Elijah was brought to the same place in the same mountain. You see, Mount Horeb 
Mount Sinai are the same place. And like Moses, Elijah went into a cleft in the rock, a little cave there. Can you see this is the same scene happening all over again, except there's a crucial twist. And here it is. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. See, first God tells Moses, go in the rock. Now God tells Elijah, go out in front of the rock. See, he says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, what's going on here? Well, with, with Moses, God brings down his direct presence. But here, there's like this dizzying array of superpowers God uh, shows. No other place in the Bible has as many. There's a fire, right? There's an earthquake. Then there's a, a hurricane. Then a voice and a gentle whisper. What was God showing him? Well, God was showing Elijah and us two things. First, simply the word of grace. You see, what didn't change Elijah's frustration, Elijah's bitterness, Elijah's discouraged heart was fire, wind, earthquake. These are tokens, displays of judgment, can you see? These all represent the way that God would sometimes come in judgment and did at other points. With Abraham, he came as a fire, right, a smoking pot. When he gave the Ten Commandments, God came as an earthquake. Later on in the upper room with the disciples, God came as a rushing wind. But what changed Elijah's heart wasn't a display play of judgment but was a simple small gentle voice see God's saying it's my word that ultimately changes people he's saying look at your own heart Elijah I just showed you my judgment right I just showed you the spectacular people say if I could just see a miracle I would believe no you wouldn't no you wouldn't many people do and they still don't I show you the spectacular God says but what changed your heart Elijah oh it was God's glory coming as a gentle voice. And many of you need to hear that this morning. And that was my story. What changed my life 20 years ago, two weeks ago, was when I encountered the loving and gentle voice of God speaking to me at a campus ministry meeting. The University of Houston, God spoke to me through a prophetic word from a man that I had just met. It was totally accurate. In that moment, I sensed God's glory, his presence come, coming near to me. I began to weep. That man had to hold me up, upright. Man, I'm going to hear this college athlete about to fall to my knees as I encounter God's glory through a gentle whisper in my heart. See, God could have shown me tokens of judgment, could have said you're wicked and selfish, and he would have been, he'd have been right. But what changed me? The word of grace softened me. See, Elijah heard that, and it changed his life. But that wasn't all that changed him. Oh, because you have to ask, how could he even hear the voice in the first place, right? I mean, he heard it, but he had to have something first. He was locked up in his cave, but then God says to come out and see something. And what Elijah saw is the second thing you need to see today, too. And he saw this, not just the word of grace, but the power of the rock. God says, Elijah, come out of the cave and face me. And he had to know at this point, Elijah is trembling and frightened. I mean, face you, God. Is this the end, right? Are you going to kill me? And just to confirm that thought, he probably thought that was what was going to happen. Here comes judgment, right? Here comes fire, earthquake, uh, the, 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 the wind. And somehow, though, Elijah, he wasn't consumed, was he? No, he wasn't shattered. He wasn't burned. What was? What was shattered? What was crushed, burned, scorched? It was the rock. Yeah, it was the rock. The judgment came down on and shattered the rock. The same rock that saved Moses took the blow so that Elijah could now live and face God 
and see his voice. In other words, God was showing Elijah, oh, Elijah, you're frightened. You're scared of what's happening in your life right now. But you have to see, when you're protected by my rock, nothing, not even the power of judgment, not even the power of hell can touch you. See, Elijah was saved because the rock was split. And centuries later, not just down Mount Horeb, but on Mount Calvary, we see the full picture of what saved Moses and what Elijah saw. Jesus Christ, the one whom the New Testament calls the rock of God. On the cross, he got all the displays of God's judgment. There was an earthquake. The fire of God's justice fell on him. He inherited the wind, so to speak. He took the blow and he was shattered. He was crushed. So that we can have the voice. We can have God's glory in our lives. Listen, every one of us, like Elijah, will one day stand before God. And either we will get the judgment or the rock will get the judgment for us. See, God's saying, I've given you a rock to hide in. I've given you something. His name is Jesus, a rock that takes the judgment for you and frees you from fear and frees you from pride and from discouragement and from depression because you know that the greatest thing you'll ever have to face, the most terrifying force that could ever come against you, the justice and wrath of God, has now been poured out on the rock of God. And his name is Jesus. And therefore, if that's been defeated, church, how much more now can you and I, can we as a church live with confidence, right? Live with courage. Live with unstoppable conviction today, huh? How much more can we live big and pray big and believe big because we serve a great God, the God of glory. All of this is yours in the gospel. Let's ask for some of that right now as we close.